Happy Easter morning to everyone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to jump right into uh, to looking at God's Word. Lord, thank you for our time together. We're thankful that we can be together apart. Help us to enjoy each other and you. Thank you for uh, the sacrifice of your Son and the victory that we all can gain because of His victory over sin, death, and the grave. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but um, this whole experience at the beginning gave me quite a bit of fear. I would ask those, you know, what happens if questions? What happens if there's not enough food? You can tell I like to eat. And so what happens if there's not enough food? I mean, um, in my backyard, there's a whole bunch of squirrels, but I'm not really sure how, you know, to catch them or, or kill them or clean them or anything like that or cook them. Um, although Miriam did say there was a big possum in the backyard today, so that, uh, that's a lot more meat from what I understand. But what happens if we have these questions about what happens if? What happens if unemployment reaches 30%? Uh, what happens if the economy can't recover? Uh, I, at the beginning, I was worried, what happens if well, we can't have church together for Easter? I don't worry about that one anymore, because <laughs> that one is a reality. What happens if my kids lose their jobs? What happens if I lose my job? What happens... If the supply chain is broken and we can't get our Easter bunnies, by the way, that one didn't happen. I've honestly, personally, never really worried so much about catching the the virus. Um, That's really not been a fear of mine, but I have had fears. What I love about God is that He knows my heart, and I've been reading the Word as much or more than I've ever done it before in my life right now. And just the other day, uh, we're having the, I'm having these fears and this ang- a little bit of anxiety. I, I never really got out of control with all this because every time I would, it was, it was just the Lord would speak and whisper in my ear, hey, it's going to be okay. But look at these verses he gave me the other day. It's just, just really, I needed them. And look at what they talk about. Don't be concerned about what you'll eat or what you'll drink. Well, that was the stuff I was worried about. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. And it was almost as if God was saying, that's not what you... That's not for you. That's for unbelievers. Uh, all over the world worry about this stuff. But your father already knows what you need. He already knows. Then he says, seek the kingdom of God above all else. And he will give you everything you need. Here's the truth that I think we have to understand. What we feed will grow. I, if I feed my faith, it'll grow. If I feed my fear, it'll grow. Whatever I'm feeding is what's going to grow. And so just for a second, we're we're not going to harp on the fear part today, but just for a moment, I want you to tap in to that little bit of fear that you might have been feeling, or maybe you're having anxiety today. And consider what Jesus' disciples must have thought, must have experienced between his arrest and his resurrection. Because it all went south really, really fast. Kind of like this thing, kind of like this virus, kind of like how... Uh, everything is sort of seems to have spun out of control here in America. It just really happened fast. One day we're planning to watch the NCAA tournament, and the next thing everything's can- next thing you know everything's canceled. It goes from uh, I mean it's the best time of the year for a lot of us. March we love March. March went from the best time of the year to the uh, the worst time of the year, and it happened really quickly. And and so here you have Jesus's disciples who had come in with him on Palm Sunday to. Ex- exclaim you know people were excited about him that was less than a week before and then all of a sudden they're experiencing Jesus's arrest and this kind of mock trial and before they know it Jesus is crucified 
And with Jesus' crucifixion go all their hopes, all their dreams. They feel helpless. And and a, a recipe for fear is when you have helplessness and hopelessness. And when you combine those two, it is the, the, the formula for fear. So let's see what happened. Uh, Jesus' disciples, they heard about the resurrection, but this is how we find them in, um, uh, in John 20. On the evening of the first day, that would be on Sunday, the resurrection day. On the, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Fear can be overwhelming. And if you're afraid today, I want to echo the words of Christ where he said, Peace be with you. Now, Jesus had helped them with this. He had told them it was coming. In fact, the night of his betrayal, Jesus had done several things. He had washed the disciples' feet. He had kind of modeled for them, hey, this is what service looks like. And when we're in a, a pandemic like this, when we're in a crisis like this, he wants us to serve others. He set, he's, he's modeled it. He set the standard for us. So Jesus has shown us on, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus showed them what to do. He told them what to do. You, you wash the feet. He established the Lord's Supper. And we're going to take that at the end of our service today. And by the way, if you have the elements with you, that's great. Uh, at the very end of our service, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And so if you can find uh, some uh, sort of bread, some sort of uh, uh, drink, some grape juice or something like that, that would be great. If not, um, the Lord knows that we're in uh, desperate times and uh, we just need to use a couple of elements that, uh, that replicate the body and blood of Christ. Uh, Jesus offered words of comfort. He, he said things like, don't let your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. These words of comfort. He promised to give us the Holy Spirit. He prayed for his disciples, including us. And then he issues this new command. L- look at it. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And this whole idea, this expression of love uh, was going to take, that whole idea of as I have loved you was going to look a lot different in just a little bit when Jesus went to the cross for our sakes. When I was in seminary, I kind of was a little OCD on this. I wanted to find Bible verses uh, to to back up, kind of a, a scriptural basis for everything I did. So it, I know you, the older I've gotten, the more I understand it can't work that way always. But I, what I really was trying to do is any activity I was participating in, I wanted to kind of find some scripture that would justify it. Now, this was working out just okay, pretty well, until I started dating Miriam, who many of you know became my wife. And when I started dating Miriam, uh, I would walk her to the door. I really wanted to kiss her, but I didn't really have any scriptural foundation for it. So I would walk her to the door, and I would politely wish her a good night, and turn around and, and go home. And this happened over and over and over again. And the longer we dated, the more in love I fell with her, uh, in lo- fell in love with her, and the more I wanted to, to give her a good night kiss, but I just couldn't find any scriptural basis. So eventually I, I stumbled upon Romans 16, 16, and it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And I thought, oh, thank you, Lord. And just to be safe, I went to one of my professors, and I said, 
uh, is, is this okay? And he said, well, really, no, that's not really about dating. That's about in church and in that tradition and that culture, they would greet one another with a holy kiss. And so now I'm deflated again. And as our relationship grew, I would walk Miriam to her apartment door and wish her a good night and walk off until one night. One night, evidently, Miriam had had enough. And so I had come to the conclusion I was just going to wish her good night, and I did so, and she grabbed me and threw me up against the wall, and she kissed me hard right on the lips. I mean, she laid one on me. And she backed off just for a second, and I kind of whimpered, Scripture, I need Scripture. And she laid another one on me, longer and harder. I mean, it was a kiss like no kiss. And when she got through, she said, Here's some scripture. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So, expressions of love are interesting. Now, today we're going to talk about true love. And so let's just sort of start with this. The truth about real love. Jesus set the standard for real love. Something we really need to understand. A verse we're going to come back to uh, quite often today is John 15, 13. There is no greater, Jesus said this, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. It's one of the greatest verses ever. And honestly, there is a mystery to this. You know, there's mysteries in life. Have you noticed this? I mean, have you ever wondered why stuff happens? You ever wonder why the dentist, while she's working on you, is talking to you, and she's got her hands in your mouth, and you can't talk back? I never quite understood uh, who taught them that. Have you ever understood why people, if, if I'm in a foreign country and the person doesn't understand what I'm talking about, I talk louder as if speaking loud English is better to them somehow and they're going to understand it if I just talk louder? Have you ever understood why, understood why people say, heads up when they really want you to duck, that doesn't make any sense to me? Those things don't make any sense. And something else that doesn't make any sense to me is that verse where it says, greater love has no man than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. It is an amazing thing to me. Really two things in this verse. That Jesus would love me enough to lay down his life for me and that he would consider me his friend. Now, now you might say, well, I'm not Jesus' friend. I don't really follow him and, and I'm not a follower. I, I get that. I mean, I know not everybody is Jesus' friend, but everybody could be Jesus' friend. Here's one of the most amazing verses in Scripture from Romans. Look, look at this. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us. Now, most people would not be willing to die for even an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. One of the, one of the realities, one of the greatest <laughs> truths of all time is this. That Jesus loves you whether you want him to or not. Red, yellow, black and white, rich, poor, sophisticated or redneck, short, tall, skinny, fat. You may feel far from God and you may feel unlovable. That doesn't change the fact that Jesus set the standard for love. John 3.16, we all know, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. We understand that to mean that that Jesus' sacrifice is for all of us. He set this amazing standard. Now, the second thing I want us to notice is there are many cheap substitutes for real love out there. They're all over the place. Probably the most common one is romance. Uh, advertisers sort of tap into this quite a bit. 
They'll tell you if you use the right shampoo or the right deodorant or the right toothpaste or the right cologne, well, then you will find true love. If you're an old geezer like me, they'll tell you, oh, you need to, uh, you need to color your hair because if you color your hair, then uh, all the babes are going to want you. And, and it's almost as if they, they, they leave you with the impression that uh, you, you color your hair and you don't have any more gray. You walk down the street and they're just, the women are just tackling you, which is the reason I don't do it. Uh, the reason I kept the gray, because if I get tackled, I don't recover very well anymore. So uh, who wants that? But we're told, oh, you have to find a soulmate. You have to find romance. And so this is really disconcerting for people. You have single folks who feel like they're kind of marginalized because they haven't found uh, that one person. And, and you have couples who are together and are married, and they look across the table and they don't see the romance that they uh, have been told is what should be evident in their lives. What's really interesting to me, there are biblical characters uh, who kind of gave into the same ideas. You had David and Bathsheba. David saw a woman, he lusted for this woman, he committed adultery with this woman. It affected not only his life, but the life of, of all of his family for the rest of his life and most of their lives. This one act of selfishness on David's part had repercussions not just for his immediate family, but really for the nation. He was the leader, and it messed, kind of messed up everybody. And then his son, he had a son by the name of Solomon, and the apple didn't far, fall, fall far from the tree. Solomon was, was considered the wisest man in the world, and yet look at this text about him. Uh, King Solomon loved many foreign women. That is the understatement of Scripture. The Bible tells us he had 300 wives and 700 concubines. And if you're young and don't know what a concubine is, it's like a porcupine, almost the same thing. Uh, uh, King Solomon loved many foreign women. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they'll turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on uh, loving them anyway. This text is saying to us, listen, listen, listen. God knows what he's talking about. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. You think, because God knows what he's talking about. And in Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord's. I've been around a long time. I've, I've dealt with people. I've had counseling sessions with couples. I've seen the scourge of romantic love destroy families. I've seen women leave their husbands and husbands leave their wives because they, they were going after romantic love. It is a substitute and it is a cheap substitute. It's not the only one. Sometimes we substitute the approval of others. We want everyone to like us. Or we uh, substitute uh, for real love. We substitute wealth. Uh, we want lots of, of stuff. Or we substitute uh, power. Uh, we want to be really, really important. Um, and, and maybe you've settled for a cheap substitute. Romance or power, wealth. Maybe you've substituted approval addiction. You may have substituted for a long time, but you don't have to any longer. I mean, today is a day to make some changes. Here's the thing with substitute love. It always has to do with me. Which brings me to the third point. Real love is always selfless, not selfish. Again, there's our verse. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And honestly, you may not feel that you deserve that kind of love. And just to be honest, we don't deserve that kind of love. I haven't deserved it. You don't deserve it. 
you might say, well, God really can't love me. He can love you, and he does. Let me go back one more time to Romans. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Too many times we think we have to get our act together, that we have to get everything straightened out. Can you imagine how important you are to God? That he would send Christ to die for you even while you are a sinner. Same for me. How much must he love us? It reminds me of a story. This is a picture of Children's Hospital in Dallas. Um, this story was told by uh, Joyce Holiday. Evidently, when children go into the hospital, they have teachers who go in who are assigned to those students in the hospital. They can't go to the regular classes, obviously. They might be uh, having treatment or whatever. And so they need someone to uh, continue to teach the lessons while they're not uh, able to go to regular school. So this one teacher got an assignment, and, and the regular teacher called and said, this little boy, this week we're working on nouns and adverbs. And if you would go and work on nouns and adverbs, and, and she sent the, uh, the material, and she said, if you could work on this with him, that way he won't get too far behind. So uh, the teacher at the, uh, the children's hospital gladly went uh, toward the, the room. You know, she got the boy's name, the room number. And yet when she got close, she discovered that she was in the burns unit. And she really wasn't prepared for what she saw because when she went into the room, she saw a little boy who was severely burned and was in great pain. Now, her initial inclination was to turn around and go and walk off because it was just almost more than she could bear. But she gathered herself, took a deep breath, went into the room and said, I'm, I was sent by your regular teacher uh, we're going to work on nouns and adverbs today. And she proceeded to painstakingly go through uh, this lesson. When she walked out, she admitted that she was a little bit ashamed, that she had put that boy through that. He was in such pain, and he, he didn't seem to be responding. And she went through the lesson because she was supposed to, but she really didn't know how effective it was. She came back the next day, and one of the nurses called her outside, and they said, what did you do to that little boy? Now, she was now really embarrassed, afraid that she had perhaps overstepped or done too much or uh, tired him out. And the nurse said, no, no, you're, you're misunderstanding. Uh, before you came yesterday, that little boy had given up. He wasn't uh, responding to treatment. He was uh, sullen. He really <laughs> had no joy. What did you do? And this teacher said, well, we just worked on nouns and adverbs. And the little boy later explained it this way. And I want to read it to you. He said, they wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a little boy who was going to die, now would they? See, he didn't have hope. And then he got hope. Now let's apply it to our lives. God wouldn't send his son to die for us if he didn't think we were very important, now would he? Let me look at our verse one more time. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. Jesus did it voluntarily while we were sinners. Let me show you a picture. This is a priest by the name of Don Giuseppe Berardelli. He's from Italy. He was 72 years old. He got COVID-19. He was put in the hospital. Um... He lived in a town called uh, 
Castanigo, uh, which is 50, about 50 miles from Milan. Uh, he was hospitalized, put on a ventilator, but later requested to be taken off the ventilator. And his rationale was he, he eventually refused. He said, I will not use this ventilator. Use it on someone younger who it might save. When we read a verse like, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for a friend, uh, the priest, Berardelli, he showed us what it looks like to lay down one's life even not for a friend. God's love for us is really overwhelming. There, there's a, a word in, in Hebrew uh, for his love. It's called chesed. Say it with me. Chesed. You have to go, you have to be very guttural. Chesed. It's fun. It's fun to say. Chesed means the consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of our Father God. That's the kind of love that he has for us. So, let's go back to our verse we kind of started with. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, we're going to talk about that in just a second, when the doors were closed for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. One of the sad things about this particular time in the world is that when someone goes to the hospital, they can't have somebody go with them. Um, the other day, we, we, I was part of a funeral, and and we were restrained, we were restraining ourselves from offering hugs to the family because we were not supposed to be close. Here's one of the things I really know and, and discovering about Christianity. We really need each other. I think it's interesting that the scripture says here, the disciples were together. Where else were they going to go? What else were they going to do? We, we celebrate the victory of Easter and usually it's together because it is this amazing this amazing uh, display of what real love looks like. As you know, I'm a Kentucky basketball fan. I love it when we win. And when we win, I'll call my, my mother, and then I'll, we'll talk to my, some of my buddies, and we'll text back and forth, and we celebrate together because the victory isn't just the team's, it's ours. And resurrection of Christ isn't just His, it's ours. We get to celebrate too. It's not just Jesus that won the victory. He won it, but He won it for us. Just like when my team wins, in some regard, He wins it for me and for us. Yet this isn't some irrelevant sporting event. This is victory over death. This is ultimate victory. And we celebrate it today. Now, let me invite you. If you're not on the team yet, maybe you're not celebrating like you should because Christ isn't, you're not on his team. Today's a great day to become part of the team. It's really a matter of, okay, I'm going to repent of my sins. I, it's not hard for many of us to admit we're sinners. I'm going to repent. Repent simply means confess, hey, Lord, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to do this anymore. I repent and I ask for guidance. Lord, will you, will you forgive me? And will you guide me? I, I did that as a seven-year-old little boy. I'm around people all the time that do it. If you've never done it, it's really, really simple. Just say you're sorry and ask for guidance. You can do that today. Let me make one more point before we go to communion. I admitted earlier on in this message I had experienced some fear. And what I didn't need at that time is some bumper sticker theology. Uh, some, hey, God's got this kind of stuff. 
What I needed was to be reminded that God really is in control. Uh, The Lord led me to a couple of verses in Romans. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? And I like this part of the verse. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble? Well, the the answer is no. He's going to say no in just a second. Does it mean he, he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I gave you the formula early on. Helplessness plus hopelessness equals fear. But I've got a better formula that we're going to end with today. Love is greater than fear. I I might be afraid of job loss and I might be afraid of loss of life, honestly. But what I am not afraid of is that when I die, where I will go. Jesus, his resurrection is the power that lifts us all to heaven if we'll just ask. And so one of the reasons we take communion is to remind us of the victory of his resurrection. So we're going to take communion together apart right now. Um, I have this little cup, and so if you have one of these, they're a little tricky, so I want to just kind of warn you that there's a little cellophane on the very top that you peel off to get to your wafer, and so you're going to want to do that, your little cracker. Uh, It looks a little bit like styrofoam, honestly. Um, Let me read for you uh, from Luke 24. This is after the resurrection. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They were going to uh, anoint Jesus' body. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clo- clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is no longer here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? And verse 7 are the words of Christ. The Son of Man speaking of himself, he's saying, I must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. We take communion as an opportunity to remember. Uh, Some of you might wonder, well, can I give it to my children? If your children are believers in Christ, yes, absolutely, I think it's appropriate. If they're not, it's also appropriate to say, this isn't for you yet. Someday, but not yet. And they can watch you, and it's an opportunity to learn. It's sort of like baptism. Sometimes we do baptisms, and not everybody gets baptized, obviously. And children will watch, and they'll ask questions. It's a great opportunity for you to teach. And so, uh, I go over to 1 Corinthians 11. Now, the Bible also tells us, and this is really important, in verse 23, um, it talks about receiving from the Lord. But a little bit after that, it's kind of interesting. Therefore, whoever eats or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, we need to really make sure that we're right with the Lord. And so if you're certain of this and you're ready to take communion, the Bible tells us that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. He was in a room with his closest friends. He took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And in just hours, Jesus was going to go to the cross. He was going to suffer and die for us. He was going to be separated from God in a way that none of us will ever 
probably understand. And Jesus' body was broken for us. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do it now. Time to peel the top off of your cup. In the same way, it says, after supper, he took the cup. Jesus would have raised it and thanked God for it and said, uh, thank you for the fruit of the vine. It was a, a blessing a rabbi would offer for something like this. And then he made it something new. This cup, he said, is the new covenant in my blood. The covenant was an agreement. Jesus was saying, I... I'm going to do everything it takes to bring you with me into heaven. Your part of the agreement is you're going to follow me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do it now. Perhaps when we get back together, and who knows how long that's going to be, hopefully sooner than later, we can take this communion together, together, which would be great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for reminding us, for allowing us to celebrate with you this victory. You remind us of, I mean, if we remember the cross and the pain, but we also today celebrate the victory. Because while Jesus went into a tomb, he didn't stay there. And his victory can be our victory. And we thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to die for us. Lord, I pray that you would um, be real to us, that you would be close to us, that you would guide us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.